Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and I hope you're having a great morning today. Today, we are going to talk about censorship, or more specifically, we're going to talk about these technological companies, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter in particular, that have enacted policies in respect of the COVID-19 outbreak, the coronavirus, and how it is affecting how people discuss these things and exactly what they're doing and why, in my opinion, it's so problematic for having discourse in a modern society. I've pulled up an article now from the New York Post. And before we get started, I want to say we're going to talk about a few news sources that you probably aren't going to agree with, whether that's the New York Post. I've also got a tab here for Fox News, or maybe you don't like the BBC or Time. We're going to talk about all of those various sources. And what I would say in respect of that is not that you have to agree with what any given specific source says. As a matter of fact, I don't agree with what even the New York Post has put out there necessarily in the opinion that it is at the heart of this specific discussion. But what I do agree with is the ability for people to evaluate things themselves. If you've been around virtual legality for a while, you know what we like to do is we like to go to the source. We like to look at multiple different angles of attack for how a specific source is interpreted, kind of use our critical thinking skills and try to determine for ourselves whether someone is trying to hide the ball with what they are saying. And I think a few of these articles do that, but also whether or not we can even kind of delineate the truth. And one of the things I would say is when articles, when even bad opinions, when things that are maybe problematic that you see and you say that is a stupid opinion are just squashed at a technological level, whether that's Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or wherever, that's a problem for even engaging in that process. So here in virtual legality, we're a fan of that kind of battle of ideas concept. Say, hey, yeah, that's moronic. Let's get rid of that. Let's understand what was said there, though, so that it can be adequately defended against rather than just quashed and killed before it even can be countered. And that's what we're dealing with today. Now, because you've already heard me say COVID-19 and coronavirus now a couple of times, Expect me to say it a couple dozen times in this video. My expectation is that YouTube and their robots will demonetize this video, otherwise push it down on the list of things that people will otherwise see. So if you could, before we get started, put a like down, subscribe to the channel, maybe put a comment down, help those engagement stats. I would appreciate it. Of course, that doesn't apply to those folks that have never seen a virtual legality, don't know whether I know anything at all or whether this episode will be any good. You can wait till the end of the episode or you can just say, hey, I'm not interested in any of that. That's no problem at all. But for those of you who like the channel, if you could help me out there, I would very much appreciate it. Now, let's get started talking about this issue. I've pulled up an article from the New York Post says Facebook's fact checkers are the real fake news after censoring post story. And we look at this article, it says way back on February 23rd, which is only two months ago, even though it feels like six years, the post ran an opinion piece by Stephen Mosher saying that we couldn't trust China's story about the origins of COVID-19. As a matter of fact, that article is right here. It says, don't buy China's story. The coronavirus may have leaked from a lab. Now you see, I've highlighted the words may have here. A couple things. I read this article and I think it is probably needlessly incendiary for the amount of evidence that Mr. Mosher had at the time, February 22nd, 2020. What he's done in this article is he's taken all these various bits and pieces about how China was seen to respond 
to the outbreak as it happened late last year and early this year and has taken those pieces of evidence to essentially surmise that maybe the virus came out of a lab. He goes on, he says, the very next day, evidence emerged suggesting that this is exactly what happened, that it escaped from a lab as the Chinese Ministry of Science and Technology released a new directive titled Instructions on Strengthening Biosecurity Management in in Microbiology Labs that handle advanced viruses like the novel coronavirus. He says something like that is indicative, is circumstantial evidence that maybe it in fact escaped from that laboratory. He continues and says, hey, we've been researching these things at this laboratory in China for a while. Does this suggest to you that the novel coronavirus may have escaped from that very lab? It does to me. China has a history of similar incidents. Maybe they are selling animals at their wet market that came from that lab. Maybe people are eating them. All of this kind of uh, surmising, all of this speculation. This is labeled as an opinion piece in the New York Post. He gets through all of the circumstantial evidence and he says, I don't buy any of China's arguments. It turns out snakes don't carry coronaviruses. Bats aren't sold at that specific market. And then the closest he comes to an actual statement of fact is that the evidence points to this research being carried out at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And that's maybe a little bit close to the sun if I were legal at the New York Post, but it's not specifically incorrect. The evidence points to is a bit of language, maybe a bit of trickery, depending on how you feel about this kind of article that says, hey, I've put all these facts out there and I think those facts lead to this point. It doesn't say that it is the point. And nowhere here, because this is important, nowhere here does he actually accuse the Chinese government of making the virus as a bioweapon. That's one of those kind of hot issues that comes up in Twitter and Facebook and and YouTube and elsewhere that says, oh, you're not allowed to call things a bioweapon. And we'll see that in, I believe, the YouTube terms and conditions right now with respect to coronavirus as an issue. But this article lays out all these kinds of bits and pieces of circumstantial evidence. And as it turns out, That article, even though I find it a little bit incendiary and perhaps not the best kind of basis for making these determinations, winds up going viral. says, the piece was widely read online until Facebook stepped in. As a matter of fact, we'll leak ahead a little bit. The article that actually talks about this says, it received more than 13 million views and 100,000 shares at the time of this review. This is a health review that says, Viral New York Post article perpetuates the unfounded claim that the virus that causes COVID-19 is man-made, even though the article, if you read it, is really more about whether it was at the specific laboratory in Wuhan and then uses the word bioweapon a couple times in the article to maybe insinuate that. I don't think that's wrong to suggest that the opinion piece insinuates it, but it never outright says it. So we actually have kind of competing people yelling at each other and making assumptions for what the other is saying in a way that if you're sitting back and listening to this episode of Virtual Legality, you say, how could this possibly have been flagged by fact-checking because it's an opinion piece and this one in response to it is kind of opinionated back at it? And I would say, yeah, that's right. Nonetheless, as the New York Post correctly reports here, it wound up getting flagged by Facebook said the social media giant's fact-checkers decided that this was not a valid opinion. If you tried to share Mosher's column on Facebook, the social network stuck a false information alert on top, saying that the finding was checked by independent fact-checkers and preventing your friends from clicking to connect to the original article to see for themselves. 
Now that's pretty draconian. That's as high level as it gets from one of these places, right? We are labeling it false and we're not letting you click through. We have made that determination for ourselves. It winds up looking like this, which you see I used as the background for the thumbnail of this video. False information checked by independent fact checkers. See why, which I believe leads you to kind of the reports on this specific item, which we will look at as well but you can't click directly on the article. Now you have the title, so you can go around the horn, you can Google it, but most people I think that are interacting with social media aren't gonna take that step. And certainly on the margins, some people aren't gonna take that step. So it actually is suppressing the spread of this information. And if you're not familiar with Facebook's policies here, I've pulled up the Facebook business kind of page that describes what's happening. Fact checking on Facebook, what publishers should know. Publishers meaning people that write things, people that are otherwise getting linked to on Facebook, what they need to know about this. In terms of background, I've covered this in virtual legality before in the past, but in terms of background, Facebook has been facing a continuing effort to have them address quote unquote fake news. And they've got a lot of pressure from various constituencies, including a lot of members of Congress in the United States and the president to some extent. Uh, but it depends on what exactly they're reporting on to whether or not any given congressperson or the president is for or against Facebook. And that kind of leads to this specific problem. Facebook, in an effort to address this, especially going forward towards the 2020 presidential election, because they were brought up so often with how Russia was potentially using disinformation in 2016 and the Mueller report and all that good stuff that we've talked about in the past or that you've probably seen outside of virtual legality, Facebook has tried to say, okay, we're going to have a process in place to prevent our platform from disseminating false news. The primary problem here is that falsity has to be adjudged. And so what Facebook has done is they've said, we are not qualified. We run a software company. We have this specific application that we have made and that we maintain, but we are certainly not qualified to adjudge the falsity of every single topic on the face of the planet Earth because on Facebook or in social media in general, you all are talking about every single topic on the face of the planet Earth. So here is what we are going to do. We will identify news that may be false using signs like feedback from people on Facebook. So first of all, they have incentivized a kind of politization of their process, their reporting function to say, this is false. I want you to look at it. And I think what we have seen on Facebook and what I would strongly suggest we will see heading more closely towards the 2020 presidential election is various motivated parties getting out there and reporting on things that they quote unquote think are false that are primarily opinion based. Fact checkers may also identify stories to review on their own. So these independent fact checkers can just go find something they want to flag and knock down. The fact checkers will review content, check their facts and rate their accuracy of the content provided. And if a fact checker rates content as false, it will appear lower in the newsfeed filtered out of discovery surf, uh, surfaces on Instagram and significantly reduce the number of people who see it. And we will reserve the right to take action against repeat offenders, presumably now, like the New York Post. And they let you go and check their nonpartisan international fact-checking network. And again, when we're talking about coronavirus, right, this is actually something that I think is useful to have in virtual legality to discuss separate from politics. The coronavirus came from somewhere. The health places that are talking about what you can use to combat coronavirus, some are going to be right, some are going to be wrong. There is truth in the reality of what can fight this thing successfully, what 
might potentially be a good therapeutic. Now, we don't know that. It's a fog. It's a question marks for all of this right now. We don't know exactly where it came from. We don't know what'll work to cure it or to even kind of de-emphasize some of the symptoms to help people survive it. We don't know all of that. But the reality is underlying what we don't know is that something is true. And so unlike politics, where you can basically yell at each other about what might be true and look at alternate universes for economic policies and international policies and all that stuff, there is some truth here that underlies all of these kinds of pieces, all of this reporting. So while politicians have to deal with Facebook and Facebook has said we're not going to treat politicians quite the same it becomes an open question as to whether or not Facebook should be rating something labeled as an opinion piece that uses circumstantial evidence, that uses the word suggested all over the place, and then, yes, insinuates certain things, but never goes so far as to, in my opinion, cross a line, doesn't actually assert facts that can be disputed, right? There isn't falsity there because it's one guy's opinion. Now, maybe that doesn't work for you. Maybe you think that's close enough to the sun that the New York Post shouldn't put those things out there. The question isn't whether they shouldn't put it out there. The question is, should nobody be allowed to discuss it or see it? That it's so dangerous that it needs to be hidden in a box. And then ultimately, if it is so dangerous as to be hidden in a box and other articles could be so dangerous, should Zuckerberg and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube be the ones determining the size of the box and what goes in there? I've got problems with that, as you can no doubt tell. We then see in Facebook's rating system, they've got false, partly false, true, false headline, not eligible for things like politics. And they also have a label for opinion. The content advocates for ideas and draws conclusions based on the interpretation of facts and data. It's hard to see how the New York Post article here, as much as I might not like how he puts his facts and data together and think maybe this was too early to come to this kind of conclusion, hard to see how this isn't an opinion. And yet, Facebook threw this up. False information checked by independent fact checkers, labeled opinion here by the New York Post, was actually in the format of an opinion. Facebook allows for opinion to be there and to be rated separately from false, and yet they didn't do so. So we go back to the New York Post and what they described happened here, and we see that they actually referenced specific independent fact checkers on that article that we took a look at really briefly that says, unfounded claim that the virus that causes COVID-19 is man-made, which wasn't actually, if it was a claim in there, it was all between the lines. It says, written by Stephen Mosher, who lacks experience in virology or biological research, the article claims that the new coronavirus is the result of a leak in a Chinese laboratory. It says the evidence suggests as much, that the evidence points to, at very least, China not being worth believing. And to some extent, that's an opinion that a number of people have, and that's an opinion that I think he lays out how he got there, and you can disagree with it. That's the great part about reading opinion pieces, op-eds. I don't agree with almost anything that gets put in the Washington Post. I don't agree with almost anything that gets put in the Detroit News. I'm from Michigan. But even so, it's worthwhile to have those opinions to help understand how you have your own opinions and where those might be weak or could be strengthened with another person's perspective. But yeah, he's not a virologist. He's not a biological researcher. And ultimately what this article wound up doing, which again was Facebook's basis for saying you aren't allowed to see this article, was to quote people that worked at this lab and says, I can personally attest to the strict control and containment measures implemented while working there. Or another person that says this article contains lots of circumstantial evidence put together in an inflammatory way and any responsible government 
would strengthen safety and security procedures. Remember, one of the pieces of evidence that he uses is that this report went out and they were flying people in to discuss things at this lab. And, and this guy says, I think rightly so, as a counterpoint, hey, yeah, okay, maybe that looks circumstantially like it leads to that conclusion. But also, let's say that it didn't. Let's say it didn't escape from that lab. If you're China, wouldn't you fly people in to say, oh, that lab is right near there. We need to make sure that that security is up to snuff. Now, you don't have to agree or disagree with either side, but it's worthwhile to have the conversation and make these determinations on your own. Additionally, you look at these reviewers on this kind of thing, and it winds up sounding like comments to a YouTube video. It is difficult to respond to this article because it is infuriating on a personal and professional level. These are supposed to be independent fact checkers. What is independent about somebody that is infuriated because they actually worked there, right? That's not independence. That's essentially siding with the lab. Now, something like this doesn't have an opposite side so easily identified as it is with respect to politics. But clearly the folks that are defending the lab are the opposite end of, oh, the lab leaked it somehow. And so you look at this and you say, well, if I were looking at this and trying to determine whether this person were independent in this assessment, certainly starting out by saying it is infuriating on a personal level suggests that there lacks that independence. So it's really no surprise when the New York Post kind of continues with this article in the last couple days and says, this week brought hard news in the form of State Department cables from January 2018, showing that the U.S. government had longstanding grave concerns about safety protocols at the Wuhan lab, China's only level four biohazard laboratory. And multiple outlets, including Fox News and the Washington Post, report that top U.S. national security officials are increasingly of the belief that the bug came from that lab. The New York Post has asked for weeks to get Facebook to unblock the Mosher article. On Friday, the social network finally did so, though without acknowledging that it had been wrong all along. Now, the New York Post is sowing its oats here, right? Whether or not Facebook is ultimately wrong is still in question. We don't for sure know that anything specifically came out of the lab because if you're in virtual legality, we use our critical thinking and we say, okay, now the U.S. government says that that might be the case. Now the Washington Post has said there were cables that say there were problems with the security at that lab. And Fox News says it has sources, an article of which we're also going to look at, but you don't have to believe any of those. You don't have to believe the U.S. government over the Chinese government. You can make those determinations for yourself. But getting that information is the important part about having that conversation, about understanding the various pieces of evidence that are coming forward. Now, let's take a look at what YouTube actually has to say about this, because we're not going to cover a lot about YouTube in this particular video. But what we are going to say is that this concept of misinformation and having problems with your content is not unique to Facebook, right? YouTube has been struggling with this. You heard me at the top of this video say, hey, I'm going to say COVID and coronavirus a lot. Please help me out by engaging with the video. The reason I have said that is because even though I feel very good about the content that I have put out there, a lot of which I think is very optimistic and hopefully buoying people in this very distressing time, even though I feel that way about that content, YouTube has actually personally reviewed some of that content and said, nah, this isn't good enough. 
We are demonetizing this. They demonetized the video where I analyzed the federal statute about bioterrorism when the Department of Justice suggested that maybe they could use those federal statutes against folks that lick things in grocery stores. I took a look at the statute. That's not a political stance. That's not misinformation. I'm a lawyer. And I looked at the statute and said, it's kind of a rough claim for the Department of Justice to make. They demonetized that. They reviewed that. And they came to the determination that that was not monetizable, that that didn't meet their guidelines. Why? You never find out from YouTube, just like you never find out from Facebook or Twitter. And that's a problem in and of itself. But it means that these companies are making this determination. And yeah, demonetization is not the same. It's not the same level as what Facebook did here and say you can't click through. You could potentially go find that video on YouTube of me talking about that statue. You could find it right now. If you're already a fan of virtual legality, if you're already a subscriber, if you already know that I exist. However, YouTube's growth, a growth of a channel on YouTube is really premised on getting out there into the general algorithm, finding a place where people that don't already know you can experience your content. And every single thing that I have said about coronavirus, initially at least, gets demonetized, pushed down, and never makes the numbers that, frankly, I think that they deserve. Here we see that YouTube actually identifies problems that they potentially have with what you might say about coronavirus. It says content that misinforms users about health matters related to COVID-19. This includes content that encourages non-medical tests or exams or false slash unsubstantiated claims about the cause, promotion of dangerous remedies or cures, origin or spread of COVID-19 that contradict scientific consensus. Well, Seems to me that the New York Post opinion piece, if it is deemed to be factual as Facebook did and not a mere opinion based on circumstantial evidence, would contradict some amount of scientific consensus as of the time that it was written. Doesn't contradict it today. And that's the problem with all of this. We are dealing with a fog of war type situation where nobody quite knows what's going on on any given day. And yet you have these companies stepping in to make the determination for you in advance, even when they have to walk it back entirely. It says examples of this include that government or governments created the virus as a bioweapon, which remember is what that health article complained that the New York Post did. Now, I read it thoroughly and I really didn't see that claim. And he claims that the corporations created the virus, that it's spread through 5G, the cell phone system, that it targets certain ethnic groups, or that it is only a hoax, cover-up, or deliberate attack. Now, there is some truth to whatever happened here. Regardless of what's being reported, there is a truth underlying our reality about how it was created, how it got pushed out from wherever it came from, and that truth can't really be speculated on safely on these platforms because that truth doesn't have a scientific consensus. The scientific consensus right now is, oh, it's unlikely that X happened. The scientific consensus when the New York Post opinion went up was that it was unlikely it was created or studied in that lab and leaked out of that lab. And here we are with articles that directly contradict that consensus, right? Here's a Fox News article. And I know I know some of you don't like Fox News, and that's perfectly fine. The point of this video isn't to say that you have to believe this. As a matter of fact, I'm going to look at this and say why I have problems with what this actually says. It says, sources believe coronavirus outbreak originated in Wuhan lab as part of China's effort to compete with the U.S. 
There is increasing confidence that the COVID-19 outbreak likely originated in a Wuhan laboratory, though not as a bioweapon, but as part of China's attempt to demonstrate that its efforts to identify and combat viruses are equal to or greater than the capabilities of the United States. Multiple sources who have been briefed on the details of early actions by China's government and seen relevant materials tell Fox News. Now, if you've been in virtual legality, you know that kind of paragraph is exactly what I jump on all the time. It is anonymously sourced. They don't even give what any of these people might be in the government. Usually you say highly placed administration official, somebody that works in the Department of Health, whatever it might be, you give some kind of context for who these people are. We get no context, multiple sources. As a matter of fact, we go a little bit further. We see Fox News has requested to see the evidence directly, which means impliedly that they haven't seen the evidence directly. So yes, the Washington Post reports on these cables, and I apologize that I can't bring the Washington Post article in here. I don't subscribe to the Washington Post, so I don't have that access. But they did absolutely report on these cables that went out in 2018 that said that our diplomats in China were suggesting to us that there were safety protocol problems. That's what the Washington Post reported. And that doesn't lead from X all the way to Y that the coronavirus came out of that lab, but it is, again, another piece of circumstantial evidence. But this Fox News article, while interesting, is anonymously sourced. We don't know the tilt of the people that are providing that information to Fox News. Maybe you have already come to the understanding that you don't like Fox News because of inherent biases or what have you. But the fact remains that this article is out there. They are claiming this. They are reporting this. And that's an important piece of understanding the kind of geography of the news cycle, understanding what people are claiming. And Fox News goes on to say, yes, the administration is taking this very seriously. And you don't have to love the administration. You could think they are complete buffoons or that they don't understand what's actually going on here. But the fact that they are taking it seriously is part of the news, is part of understanding how people are reacting. On Thursday, China's foreign ministry pushed back on the suspicion that the virus escaped from the facility by citing statements from the World Health Organization that there is no evidence that the coronavirus came from a laboratory. And as a matter of fact, earlier today, we actually see in time here, top official at Wuhan Disease Lab denies any link to the coronavirus outbreak. A top Wuhan laboratory official has denied any role in spreading the new coronavirus. There is absolutely no way that the virus originated from our institute. They don't have any evidence on this. What they rely on is only their guess. I hope such a conspiracy theory will not affect cooperation among scientists around the world. Chinese officials have also raised the possibility that the virus didn't begin in the country at all. The United States and China are having a diplomatic fight, a political fight, about the origin of the virus because it's going to be very bad for whomever, especially if it is a government institute in China, leaked this out and created this global situation. China knows that. If it leaked out of that lab, then China knows that that would look bad and they would protect themselves. The United States also knows that it's useful to say that China, which is a competitor in the political and power and military industrial and economic spheres, it would be useful to have it come out of China because that's a useful bit of leverage for them on political and diplomatic negotiations. There is a lot of tilt and a lot of fog involved in this discussion. So it's very difficult for anybody on the outside to see what is true and what is not. But that also applies to who would be independent fact checkers. That also applies to Facebook. That also applies to Twitter. If we go and we look at what the BBC reported when this article first came out, is there any evidence for lab release theory? 
They go on and on to talk about what's happening right now in the news from only the past couple of days. The Washington Post has reported information obtained from diplomatic cables. They show that the U.S. science diplomats in 2018 were sent on repeated visits to a Chinese research facility, and officials sent two warnings to Washington about inadequate safety. The column in the Washington Post says the officials were worried about safety and management at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and called for more help. The BBC then describes how these institutes work, what kind of failures might have happened in these cables. It says the short answer is we don't know from the information provided in the Washington Post. That article didn't give enough information to know what was being complained of. It says, weren't there previous claims of the virus leaking from a lab? Just like that New York Post article that we're reading right now. It says, yes, almost as soon as the novel coronavirus came to light, there was speculation, much of it uninformed about its origins. They talk about it potentially being a bioweapon. Then they say, hey, there's an allegation of an accidental release of a natural virus from a lab. That's the speculation that that New York Post article was about. But the BBC says, hey, this work was entirely legitimate and published in international journals, the work done on bat coronaviruses. And then to answer their headline, is there any evidence? They finish off by saying there is currently no evidence that any research institute in Wuhan was the source of COVID-19. Yes. Well, there's no definitive evidence. I think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and whether or not you want to give weight to that is a part of this conversation. I look at something like the BBC article and say, you write this whole thing. You've got these cables. You've got all of this circumstantial evidence to suggest that there is no evidence kind of belies your whole article. I get to the end of something like this and says, okay, all right. So you don't want that to be the case. That's fine. That's how I read the article. You might read it completely differently. But one thing I'm glad of is that you get the chance to read it and I get the chance to read it and make these determinations for ourselves. Now we've looked at Facebook, we've looked at Google. Let's take a look at our friends on Twitter, right? On April 1st, 2020, Twitter went forward and changed some of the way they define the things that can get you in trouble on Twitter to address coronavirus and COVID-19. It says, we have broadened our definition of harm to address content that goes directly against guidance from authoritative sources of global and local public health information. So Twitter is saying, we can get you in trouble. We can potentially ban you. We could potentially end your account if you go directly against guidance from authoritative sources of global and local public health information. Now, as you know, if you followed coronavirus at all, this is a potentially problematic kind of standard, right? If we go look at the World Health Organization as of January 14th, it says preliminary investigations, which they saved themselves on, conducted by the Chinese authorities, have found no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of the novel coronavirus identified in Wuhan, China. The World Health Organization, which if we're taking Twitter on its faith, has to be an authoritative source of global and local public health information, right? That would clearly fall within Twitter's kind of definition of this says that according to Chinese authorities, there's no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission. So if you were to go directly against this, if on January 14th, 2020, this April 1st rule were in place, you could potentially get in trouble. Someone could just say, hey, we've got this who tweet out here. You're lying. You can get banned. You can get punished by Twitter. Unfortunately, only about two weeks later, The CDC comes out and says, CDC confirms person-to-person spread of new coronavirus in the United States on Thursday, January 30th. This thing is person-to-person. That's going to be a big problem for us. But hey, the CDC's got this down. They only give good information. And let's look at the last paragraph of what they said here. For the general public, no additional precautions are recommended at this time. 
beyond the simple daily precautions that everyone should always take. Wash your hands, be careful, that kind of thing for normal flu season. But no additional precautions. Certainly not masks. Let's take a look at the U.S. Surgeon General. Seriously, people, stop buying masks. They are not effective in preventing general public from catching coronavirus. But if healthcare providers can't get them to care for sick patients, it puts them and our communities at risk. This is February 29th, 2020. And again, if this April 1st rule were in place on that date, if you went directly against the CDC saying, hey, we don't need to do anything extra, the Surgeon General saying, hey, stop buying masks, then maybe you could find yourself in trouble on Twitter or on Facebook or on YouTube, or anywhere else where you might have a social media presence, even if that social media presence is important for your business, how you're operating, how you're surviving in this new world order. But as you know, the CDC changed that, right? Here we've got the CDC kind of doubling down on this information. It says the virus is not spreading in the general community. Dr. Nancy Messonnier, director of the Center for the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, said in the January 30th briefing, we don't routinely recommend the use of face masks by the public to prevent respiratory illness, and we certainly are not recommending that at this time for the new virus. The CDC said last month it doesn't recommend people use face masks. The CDC recommendation on masks stands, a spokesman told Market Watch Wednesday, even with the first reported case of a COVID-19 infection in an individual in California who had not been to China or been exposed to a person diagnosed with the virus. So the CDC says, hey, no masks. You don't need them. March 2nd, 2020. Uh Uh-oh. Then we get a little bit later. Now we're at the start of April. One month later, it's official. CDC recommends public wear face masks. Late Friday night, the agency updated its consumer-facing webpage for COVID-19 self-protection as follows. Everyone should wear a cloth face cover when they have to go out in public, for example, to the grocery store or to pick up other necessities. They even made this wonderful picture talking about how cloth face coverings can help slow the spread of COVID-19. And I don't put all this up here in this video to complain about these places kind of being hypocritical or flip-flopping or changing their decision-making. There are decent reasons why potentially health organizations said no masks while they tried to get masks to our first-line responders. There are arguments to be had as to why this happened. The problem is with discourse. The problem is with if you believe that freedom of speech is something worth kind of fighting for, that is a useful value to having discussions, to kind of chipping away at the falsity to arrive at some function of the truth, to use your own critical thinking rather than Mark Zuckerberg's, rather than Jack's at Twitter, rather than YouTube's, then this should all be a problem to you, to have this kind of intermediary deciding what is false and what is true. And that's only going to get worse as we proceed down the path of items that are less likely to be knowable as true or false. If Facebook is willing to strike down an article that calls itself an opinion, that is based on circumstantial evidence, that really never crosses the line outside of saying, this suggests this, this suggests this, even if you don't agree with that suggestion or that logic pathway, if they are willing to declare that false and not let you click on that article, what aren't they willing to do that on? right? Certainly Trump policies, certainly Biden policies, certainly whatever else might become a big flashpoint issue in United States politics, or maybe your country's politics. If you're listening or watching outside the United States, Facebook has this authority and they are using it in a kind of willy-nilly way, as is YouTube, as is Twitter. And 
in the case of something like coronavirus, where the suggestions, where the guidance, where the recommendations are changing on a month-to-month basis, it doesn't make any sense to use this cudgel, to use this hammer, this sword of Damocles hanging over everyone that uses these social media platforms, to use it in this way. Because that not only hurts the discourse, it hurts even understanding what's happening. The CDC changes. Who changes? The administration changes. The Chinese government responses change. And if you can't follow that because the information isn't getting out there because Mark Zuckerberg doesn't believe that you should have it, the question as ever becomes who is figuring out what is behind Facebook and Twitter and Google and what they're invested in? I am not a conspiracy theorist. I think some of these articles are anonymously sourced. I think some of the circumstantial evidence is just that, circumstantial. I don't agree with basically anything that I have put forth in this video in its totality because I'm a human being that evaluates these things as I read them myself. And I don't want somebody like Facebook or like Twitter or like Google to get in the way and say, this is too dangerous and you shouldn't be allowed to see it. Because that, that is modern day book burning. And I think we can all agree that that's a bad thing. This has been Virtual Legality for today. I talk about these kinds of things all the time in this space. You see, I've highlighted, I just talked about a legal saga revolving around the video game Cooking Mama Cookstar, which is absolutely fascinating. Even if you don't like that game, you've never liked a cooking game in your life, I highly recommend checking it out. It's all really about intellectual property licensing and the fights that you can have around milestones and meeting those milestones on a contract basis. We also just generally talk about video games, pop culture, movies, television, as well as specifically legal items. This is going to go in the playlist YouTube at large because we talk about technology companies and how they interact with things like COPPA and what that means for your freedom, either as a content creator or just as a consumer who likes to read or watch or learn from these various services. We also cover Supreme Court cases. You see there I covered Wickard v. Filburn just to discuss something that continues to impact our daily lives that was really decided on in the 1940s, if you can believe it. And if you like any of that, if you came to the end of this article or this end of this video and you got here and you said, hey, I didn't want to give you that engagement at the start because I didn't know who you were, and you got to this point, you said, hey, I actually kind of like that, please give me that engagement now. Like, subscribe, share, engage, comment, do all that good stuff because we really are trying to build the channel, and I very much appreciate the support and the help. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And if you could leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on, I would appreciate that. Otherwise, I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.